Hello and welcome to Canada Reads American Style. I'm Shauna. And I'm Rebecca. One of the things that Shauna and I have really enjoyed about this whole podcast experience is meeting new people through Bookstagram. And as many of you hopefully have heard our previous uh, chats with Larissa and Sarah, both of whom are from Nova Scotia, we actually have a special guest with us today from Ontario. So we're really excited to invite uh, Jolene to our program. And so Jolene, welcome to Canada Reads American Style. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to our conversation today. Great. And so what we're going to do, I should mention the way that we connected is that both of us had, we're both fans of uh, Tanya Talaga, and we both had read Seven Fallen Feathers. And then Jolene mentioned, hey, why don't we do a book, a buddy read for all our relations? And I was completely on board because I had the book and I was getting ready to read it anyway. And so this kind of worked out really well. But the first thing we'll start out with, though, just so that everybody kind of gets a sense of who you are. Jolene, why don't you go ahead and just tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Well, I'm an avid reader, which is why we met on Bookstagram. And I, I'm interested in this topic because it's, it's close to my heart. I think it's something that it's something I'm passionate about. I live in St. Catharines, which is near Niagara Falls in Ontario. And I work in a high school uh, with students from grades 9 to 12. And I think that some of the things that are talked about in this book, even though it's about Indigenous relationships, I think it's about all of Canada and all of our relationships. It's things that I can learn from and that I can bring to our community and into our lives. So I think it's an important topic. That was actually one of the things that we had chatted about prior. And when you told me that you worked at a school and that you've had some of these experiences with students in the school, I thought, oh my gosh, this is really an important and relevant read to you. And I have so much I can learn through this experience of chatting with you, reading a book and chatting with you. So I'm I'm really happy to have you here today. One of the things I want to start with, though, actually, is especially with all the things that are going on in the world right now, you know, partly with the pandemic and certainly with the murder of George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter movement in the United States. One of the things I want to mention is that in our past podcasts, uh, very, very well could be that I won't speak for Shauna, but my white privilege could be smattered all over the place in previous comments that I've made or or observations I've, I've given. And I want to say that like so many of us who are white, and, and today we have a discussion with, it's, we're all white here, but one of the things I want to say is that what, we, what we're learning right now is that we need to uh, stand with our black brothers and sisters and our indigenous brothers and sisters that we need to do better. And so my goal going forward in our podcast is to try to keep my white privilege from, you know, taking up too much space and learning more and having a, a better perspective than perhaps I've had in the past. So I'm not saying that I've done a lot of horrible things in previous podcasts, but I just want to announce to our audience that I'm, I vow to do better. Yeah, I, that's a really important thing to say. I think when you first asked me uh, to do this, my hesitancy was you couldn't get a more white person, you know, so maybe I'm not the best person to be talking about this. Um, and I knew that you had spoken with Tanya Talega before, and it was a fantastic podcast. And I thought maybe she would be the right one to have back. And then I thought, no, actually, as things progressed, you know, with the black movement that's happening. And I thought, actually, 
it is appropriate because it's not just the indigenous stories and it's their problem and it's not just the black people and it's their problem it is all of our problems it's for all of us to take a, a part in how we're going to move forward and certainly i'm sure that i have said and i have done things as well definitely not intentionally but that could be taken as something that is hurtful you know i would never want to hurt someone and i think the indigenous side to this is i grew up in northern british columbia and people that I consider my family uh, are Indigenous. And I grew up with some of that mentality without knowing that it was Indigenous mentality as you read about in books. To me, it was just how we thought. So there's, there's a kind of, you know, in a way I feel like they're talking about my family. They're talking about people that I know. And I think it's very easy for some people, and this is gonna sound bizarre, there are still people who don't interact with other races. There are still people who really don't know indigenous people, and there are still people who don't really know black people. And I think that we need to do that more, is build relationships. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. There's a good friend of mine from Sacramento, and I lived in Sacramento, California for uh, 20 years. I lived in California for 30. And in, in fact, the first place I worked at in Los Angeles, I was the only white female that worked there. And it was a complete, to go from the Midwest where it was my, experience with all white to go to Los Angeles and be the only white female at the job. It was just a really, and I remember looking around thinking, wow, this is amazing. And it's what made me fall in love with California, the diversity. And it's kind of funny because I've been having this ongoing conversation with a friend of mine who's African-American. And she just said, she, she sort of said at first, she said, I think this time it's different. And I said, you do, you really do. And she's like, yeah. And the longer it's gone and the more conversations we've had, we both are in agreement that it just feels different and it feels really powerful now in our, in our history. It's, it's amazing. It's an amazing time. Yeah. I think that's true for Canadians as well. Like there's something going on that is different with the video of George Floyd. I mean, you cannot watch that and not be moved to some kind of an emotion. And I think sometimes with the indigenous uh, issues that we are still facing, people can sometimes think, well, that was a long time ago. Like, why are we concerned about this? Or that happened so long ago. But I mean, the last residential school closed in 1996. That's our lifetime. That's, you know, if you're 24, 25 years old or, or older, you know, that's our history. That's in our lifetime. This has been happening. And so, of course, there's effects and, you know, things that are stemming from that. So it's really not that old. Yeah, and I do. Yeah, I want to jump into some of these things. I want to kind of give our listeners, though, a little bit of background. And you might actually be able to speak to this a little bit better than I can. I did a little bit of research. But so Tanya wrote a book called Seven Fallen Feathers. And again, uh, Jolene kind of mentioned we did do an interview with her, which was amazing. And I have to say, I keep saying this, I was so hardcore fangirling, but I kept it under control. And I don't think she recognized that I was. But I was so excited to speak to her because the I love great nonfiction and Seven Fallen Feathers is exactly that. And what it's basically about is uh, seven students uh, in a high school in Thunder Bay over about a 10 year period who died and they were indigenous youth because they don't have high schools in their northern communities and they come down to Thunder Bay to go to school. And she kind of wrote this nonfiction account of each of their lives and what happened to them. And it is just it is life altering. So I highly recommend if you haven't read it yet for people to read it. So that kind of is the first part of the story. The second part is that she then followed up with a book called All Our Relations, Finding the Path Forward. 
And she talks about, it's kind of, the general theme is sort of youth suicide, but it's not just Canadian culture, it's other cultures as well, Indigenous cultures. And then it became part, then she actually was part of the Massey Lectures. And I looked this up because I wasn't sure, but the Massey Lectures are, it's an annual five-part public lecture series. It began in 1961, and past lecturers include Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Margaret Atwood, and Noam Chomsky. So her, she was an excellent company, but I haven't listened to all of the lectures. I've listened to a little bit, but my question, and I don't know, Jolene, if you know the answer to this, but how is the book, I mean, because if the book cover says CBC Massey Lectures, but she doesn't, the book isn't just the lectures, right? It's not like she read the lectures. Do you know, do you know what I'm saying? Like, was it a combination of theme or something? Do you know anything about that? I don't know specifically to her Massey Hall lecture. Actually, I haven't listened to it. I really should. My guess is that she did a lecture based on the book and on these topics, um, but and maybe did a little bit of a reading from it. But I think it would be more like it might have been, my guess is there's a theme every year. And then her, her topics would have fit whatever theme it was that year in the book. Yeah. Yeah, I wasn't sure because I listened to a little bit of a, of her lecture and it didn't quite match. And that's why I say when I first bought the book, that's what I thought. I thought it was sort of like a transcript kind of of the lecture itself. But I don't I don't think that's it. Obviously, I think it's because I was I listened to the first half of the first lecture. So that she did in Thunder Bay. But anyway, but let's get to uh, thanks for that. But let's get into um, the first kind of thing I wanted to talk about was and actually you came up with this and I think it's a great uh, sort of statement, but talk about the parallels between how indigenous people have been and in many cases still are treated versus what is going on in the world today with George Floyd and Black Lives Matter. So talk to us a little bit about kind of the parallels. Shortly after that video uh, was shown, people here in Canada, I don't know about the U.S., but the people in Canada were making a lot of parallels to how Indigenous people are treated. And there's definitely some parallels. And when I was reading all our relations, there was a story about uh, a prisoner who was 26 years old, David Dungay, I think it was. And he was tackled by prison guards. They, you know, they put him in this bed, pinned him down. And he said 12 times, I can't breathe before he died. And when I read that, and even as I'm telling you now, I got goosebumps. And I thought, oh my goodness. And this is not just, same as George Floyd is not a one incident thing. You know, I'm sure David Dungay's story is not a one incident thing. And these things are happening and they're happening to, you know, people who are in groups of people that aren't treated the same. Uh, They aren't treated with the same basic human rights. And those are the things that, you know, we need to start looking at. And, you know, we, we think we're doing better. We think, okay, well, we abolished slavery. So everything is good now, but it really isn't. And same with, you know, our Indigenous people, people are still being treated quite horribly throughout our country, and some of them without the basic needs being met. So the fact that people are treated, whether they're Black, whether they're Indigenous, a different way just because of that is one of the parallels. Like just what I said, when I read that in the the words, I can't breathe, 
you know, and said 12 times. And I can't remember how many times George, George Floyd said it, you know, but I just think, you know, those are, that's powerful words right now in, in our, in our life. So. Yeah. It's really an eerie statement. I mean, for these people to basically, those are their last words. I mean, it's just, it is, it's chilling and it does, it kind of just makes you really pause. But I'm, I'm interested because in the United States, you know, we have a, a, a huge racist, well, we have a racist president. So we have a racist voice that's more out there now than it has been in the last four years, uh, at least. And I'm wondering, because I don't actually like on social media, I don't really have any friends who are conservatives or who might actually be racist because when Trump was elected, I, I sort of unfriended them because I thought, you know, I'm not going to change their mind. They're not going to change mine. And I don't want to hear what they have to say, to be honest with you. I, I really didn't want to uh, be exposed to that. But my question is, so in the U.S., we know there's a huge population that really still support him and have racist leanings. So what about in Canada? I mean, because we hear always about what a great country it is. It's got the highest standard of living and it's always ranking in the top five or top three of best places to live. But what's it like in terms of racism? And I, and I realize I'm asking you about your whole country, but generally speaking, is it, is it kind of like the U.S. in that way? Racism does exist in Canada. I'm proud to be Canadian. It is a great country to live in. We have a lot of privileges for being Canadian. But the racism, I'm going to say, is maybe a little bit uh, under the radar. And what I mean by that is, you know, we, we don't see the things that you guys see on your, um, you know, on the news. Did we do peaceful protests? Yes. Did things happen? Yes. I'm sure that there is still stories about, you know, how our police have treated black people the same as there are definitely stories about how police have treated uh, indigenous people, which Tanya Talega talks about in Seven Fallen Feathers. And I think, you know, just from experience, because I can't speak for the whole country, but I do know of, you know, black friends of mine who got paid a lower wage because they were black when they started jobs. I know people who didn't get a job because of the color of their skin. And so it definitely exists in that systemic way that we're talking about now. It's in the system. What makes it okay to do this to one person just because of who they are? You know, and I and that's so that does exist. Now, I don't know that I would be able to look at all of my friends and say, well, this person is a racist, this person isn't. I think the white privilege is sometimes they may not even realize it, which is true for me. Like if I say something, it would never be to be hurtful, but it's in the way that we think and we need to start changing that and recognize it. For us, I, I think for those of us who acknowledge that white privilege exists and that we, we benefit from it, I, I think that's part of the battle right there is to at least say, yes, I understand it exists. And I was talking to my friend again, my, my friend who's African-American, this ongoing discussion that we've been having. And I said to her, one of the things that I read that kind of just made me go, wait, wait a minute. It said, white people, you have to be willing to give up your privilege. And I told her, I said, I'm going to be honest. When I first read that statement, I, I it kind of backed me up a minute. And I thought, wait, am I really, are we as white people really willing to do that? And I said, yeah, I'm all in. I'm 100% all in. And she said, I want to share your words with some of my friends. I said, yeah, do it. Because if you're white and you don't admit 
that you benefit from privilege, that white privilege. And if you're not really willing to give it up, you still have work to do. I, I really strongly believe that. It's time that it happens, actually. I mean, it's way overdue in terms of it happening. Yeah, well, it is that acknowledging. I mean, you know, the first problem to the problem is acknowledging the problem, right? So, so I think it's easy to say, well, that's not me. You know, as a white person, I don't have any privilege uh, just because I'm white. Because we don't see it. We aren't the ones on the other end of that, you know, who are not being treated properly, who are not, you know, I mean, as a woman, I can say I'm being treated differently because I'm a woman. That definitely, I've had that experience. But, you know, for being white. But then when I do see people who didn't, it would be an automatic thing for me to receive something you know, that maybe they didn't, or to be treated in a certain way, and they're not. I think that would be, you know, but we have to acknowledge that we have to actually admit that that is happening. And people, people don't want to admit that, because then you do have to make a change once you know. And once you're able to say that, then you have to make the change, because then you're part of it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Now, I do want to say, when you talked about, you know, you, you know, you, you love your country, you, you know, it's a great place to live. I agree 100% because I go there all the time. Like yes. Every chance I get, I'm there. But I do want to say uh, two things really surprised me uh, recently. And that was um, when they, and I, I'm, I apologize because my pronunciation is bad at this, I think, but it's the wet, Sowetan uh, protest. What, what I read was when people were talking about things online, there were Canadians who were saying, you know, kill them all run them over with the train, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I was kind of shocked, to be honest with you, because I didn't necessarily think that that overt racism would, you know, extend into Canada. Like, heck, I knew it was here, but I didn't necessarily know it was there. And the other piece that surprised me was I had just listened to about a month ago, I listened to a podcast about Colton Bushy, who was an indigenous, a young indigenous man who was shot and killed on a farm in Manitoba. No, I can't remember if it was Manitoba, but anyway, could have been Saskatchewan, but anyway, and then the white man who shot him basically walked. And I was reading about that. And I've read a lot of comments that people have made about that and listened to family interviews and everything. And so I think, you know, we, those of us who are in the U S we really have Canada on a pedestal. And I think part of all of what's been going on, it's been a little eye-opening for some of us maybe to say, oh, yeah, you guys do kind of have some of those problems there as well. Definitely. And I, I think you're hearing about that now because it's uh, the overtness of it. Like that, And I guess that, that's a good way of putting it is I think normally the U.S. is a bit more overt about those things than we are. And, but that doesn't mean it doesn't exist here. Um, I think people in Canada who do feel that way are maybe finding their voice because of what's going on and are, you know, trying to take up their side of the protests and stuff. So, you know, we're maybe finding out where people really stand on things. That being said, I think that that probably exists everywhere where you have people on one side and people on the other. You know, you'll have people who are racist and people who, who, who would say that they're not, or at least try really hard not to be. But, yeah, and I mean, there's definitely the racism within the indigenous communities. I mean, you look at our missing and, and murdered indigenous women, you know, and I think Tanya Talaga talks about this really well. She's like, why don't they care? 
you know it, it's they just it's like they don't care and and there's you know yeah like what because because they're indigenous that's not good, a good enough answer for me you know and uh, yeah and she yeah and she talks also about lack of education uh in the north she talks about you know uh not having drinking water, healthcare, jobs, et cetera. And it's, it's funny because that's what, and I, and trust me, I sincerely am not bashing Canada because it is my beloved uh, second country and, and I wish I could live there. But, but I do have to say that when I started to realize the whole side of that, the political issues that indigenous people face, I started saying to myself, you know, I totally understand pride in your country, but I thought, you know, Canada has a lot of work to do too. Don't get me wrong. The U.S. has always had a lot of work to do, but it, it, I think it is something that we can't just keep, you know, pushing it under the rug. And I don't think now we are. I don't think there's any way we can continue on the path we've been on. This, I, I do feel like it really is going to change. I really hope so. And I hope that our indigenous communities feel that. And I think that, you know, the more people, and like I said, I, you know, first I was like, I don't know that this is the best thing for me to be doing this podcast because I'm not indigenous. But then I thought, no, they need allies. If I was in their position, I would want, regardless of anybody's race, color, culture, I would want them to stand up and say, you know, let's help these people. You know, I don't want to be a bystander. And so, you know, I think we need we need the allies. And that is where I think Canada really fails its people is with our Indigenous communities. It's why I'm passionate about it, that in our country, a country that is, you know, revered around the world, there are people in our country that don't have clean drinking water, that don't have proper housing, that they're not even considered, you know, their human rights are not considered is what I want to say. And it, it's talked about in our in all our relations that you know people who are indigenous have uh, I forget who's the man that talked about this uh, in the book. He talks about having his card and he pulls out his his card and he's speaking to an audience of people. He's got an audience in front of him and he says, you know, I was looking at the card the other day and I realized that you know that it had expired like years before. And I think his comment was, I guess that means I'm an expired Indian. That's me quoting from the book. And in the book, Tanya says, the audience laughed. And I thought they laughed. Now, maybe they laughed if they understood what he was saying. They might have laughed because it made them feel uncomfortable because they know how true it is. Or did they laugh because they really didn't understand? And if they didn't understand, then we have a lot of work to do that indigenous people are basically wards of the state they are known by a number that makes no sense to me and he in the book you know he says he, um that you know belonging isn't up to this to the government to decide <laughs> you know and i thought you know i'm canadian but i don't have anything that says that you know i that i that i'm here i don't have anything that expires that i'm canadian so I can't imagine. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny because when he said that, yeah, when he said that, I thought to myself, you know, and I'm not trying to draw an exact parallel, but I thought, you know, when, when uh, people, you know, the Jews were taken to the, the camps, you know, they were assigned a number and I, and it just kind of chilled. I got a chill when I thought of that. And, and I, then I said to myself, you know, I don't know in the United States how, how 
like Native Americans, do they have the same thing? Is there like a card that they have? I did have a friend that I worked with who was uh, Native American and I, you know, I didn't really ever think to ever ask her too much about her culture. She talked a little bit about it, but not a whole lot. But I thought, yeah, do I, that's something I need to look up because I don't know how, and I do know that they are identified in some way because there might be, you know, like scholarships or things, different things that they have access to. So I thought, oh my God, what if it's kind of the same thing where they have a number? I it just, that was, that was kind of a shock to me, to be honest with you. Yeah. There's a lot, I was just going to say, I was just going to say that there's a, a lot of parallels between, um, I think, between how some of our Indigenous people have been treated and the concentration camps. You know, that does, is not really that far-fetched, I don't think. They're forcibly removed from their land. You know, they're stripped of their culture. Indigenous people were used for experiments. You know, so some of the things are the same. And I think that's why they consider it a genocide here in Canada. You know, we talk about genocide as in the Jewish people, the genocide in Rwanda. What about the genocide that's happening right here in our own country? And in one of the best countries that I think in the world, you know? Yeah, which just goes to show, I mean, we're all, (laughs) the whole world has a part in this. And, you know, one of the things about all our relations that really struck me, because I'm just kind of looking at the back of the book, but uh, Tanya talks about, it says on the back, it says from Northern Ontario to Nunavut, Norway, Brazil, Australia, and the United States, the indigenous experience in in colonized nations, startlingly similar and deeply disturbing. And I thought it is because every time I knew about Aborigines in Australia, I was aware of that. I really didn't understand necessarily about Brazil and in Norway. I studied Northern peoples when I was in college a million years ago. And so I knew about the, you know, the reindeer herds and the the cultural, you know, process that, you know, how they culturally lived and, and that was part of, you know, the reindeer trek and the whole thing. I knew that, but I didn't understand like all of the true experiences that they have and how similar they are. And I think that was the most shocking part of the book to me was that it's the colonization of indigenous people that is what is so screwed up worldwide. Yeah, for sure. And I think that, you know, I think the point of her book, uh, well, I think she has several, but I think the main point, you know, she starts talking about how the suicide rates in indigenous communities are like skyrocketing. But not just in Canada, not just, right, it's around in all of those countries that you talked about. And so why is that? Why is that? And it's because they all have the same experience of, you know, being taken away from their culture, from their families. And I think somewhere in the book she talks about, and I think it's in this wall, maybe it's in both of the books, where, you know, that's where we get our sense of who we are. That's how we get a sense of our dignity and that we belong. We belong to this family unit, to this community. Um, and that was stripped away from these people very early on. And so, of course, there's going to be, you know, horrible effects from that. And that's going to stick with them. And I can't imagine. I know what it was like when we moved from British Columbia to Ontario when I was almost 12 years old. And I felt like I was being ripped from something. But I didn't lose those people, and I was still with my parents. So can't imagine what it would be like to just be taken away and not see your family for sometimes years at a time. And then to be treated horribly and to be told, 
you're not good enough, that these things are bad, that who you are is bad at the core of who you are. I can't imagine it. Yeah. How do you not internalize it? Exactly. Yeah. And I actually posted on our, on our Instagram page, I posted this quote because when I was reading it, and again, it's, it, I always go back to sometimes you read something and you read it and you're aware of it. And then another time you'll read it and you'll read it at the right moment. And it sort of punches you in the gut and you kind of see it differently or you understand it differently. And here's the quote from the book. And it's on page 15. It says, for indigenous peoples, underlying that life experience is the reality of genocide. Quote, we have come from a history of genocide and genocide is about the deliberate annihilation of a race. It is about wanting to remove us from the earth permanently which is very different as a concept from transgenerational trauma. It is trauma on a more massive scale, psychologically, physically, spiritually, culturally. It is another level of trauma again. And when I read that, I, I thought about that because as a, as a white child growing up, I don't have to stop and think that someone wanted to wipe me and my family off the face of the earth. But when you read about all those horrible things about well, I won't even quote them, but you know, the horrible things that have been said about Native Americans or indigenous people in Canada, it's just like, like you have that on some level in your soul. So then suicide, if you really end up absorbing that trauma, how does suicide not seem like at times a rational decision? Yeah. I mean, suicide at any time to anyone, I think it's always, you know, uh, devastating and, and a horrible thing. But I think, like this book talks about, this is this is a, a particular thing that is happening, and it's a particular issue for those reasons that if you don't have purpose, if you're not taught who you are and that you have value, and you're being treated by people who, you know, and even people who, I mean, Indigenous people grow up with their families, it's not like they've all been taken away right now. I don't mean to say that, right? But even if you grow up within the indigenous communities, they are struggling with so many different things that I can only imagine what those parents and what they're trying to struggle with. And that those kids, even if you're trying so hard to not pass that along, some of that is going to be passed on. Right. There's always some of that. And, and they can see that you're struggling and they can see that, you know, it's been difficult. And so what does that mean for them? I think that that would be a really difficult thing. And, and they're so isolated. I think of some of our northern communities. I spent some time in northern Saskatchewan in Fond du Lac. And it's a lovely people, a Diné community. And they have, you can only fly in or boat in. And so they're very isolated. And so that community is that, you know, are the people who, who live on, on the reserve there. And they struggle with those kind of things like so many of the other northern communities do because you're isolated when you can't feed your family because the food is so expensive and i remember i took pictures i thought nobody's going to believe me and i took pictures of the milk that was 16 dollars. i took pictures of the watermelon that was 14 dollars. the oranges that were you know a skyrocket high and so it was nothing to see these young kids with a chocolate bar in the morning and a can of Coke, because that's what was cheap, that was afforded. And so then that brings on the health issues, that brings on, you know, so many other things. And they're trying to pass on their traditions, you know, they, they do go hunting, they go fishing, 
but they can't, you know, they're still struggling against the colonization. I feel for, for some of the people, you know, they're, they're, they're trying to live good lives. They're living good lives, but they have these struggles that I don't have to think about that. You know, I don't have to worry about that, but because of where they happen to choose to live, you know, they have these different uh, struggles and they want to keep their land. I don't blame them. Yeah. Well, yeah. And the other thing in the book, it was kind of interesting because, again, a, a, a certain amount of it does specifically uh, talk about youth suicide. And I have to mention, I the other day I watched a movie called Uvanga, and it was uh, set in. Oh, gosh, no, I can't remember where it was set. Oh, it was in Quebec. It was like northern Quebec. And it was in Inuit families. And it was interesting because I was really loving this movie. It was, it was so it was so interesting. And it was just a fictional story. But this one young actor, I just thought, oh, my gosh, he's just adorable. Like, he just, I loved his acting. And he was just really a cute kid. And I thought, oh, my gosh. And I always, I have to admit, sometimes I'll look up people and kind of see if they have social media or whatever. And he, he committed suicide three years ago. And I thought, oh, my gosh, he was so young. I think he was 19 when he killed himself. And when I read the article, what had happened was his best friend committed suicide. Another girl that they knew shortly after committed suicide. And then he was the third. And I thought this is one of the things she talks about in the book is that there was, I think, in one situation, there was a rash of like seven girls between the ages of like nine and 11 or something that had killed themselves. And I thought. I don't even know how, how a family, how a community heals from that or how they address it. And that was interesting, too, when they were talking about, you know, hoping for help from the provincial government and it wasn't really coming. And so they've been trying to do things on their own. But I think I don't think I could be wrong, but I don't think we have the same issue here with youth suicide. I don't think that we do. But I'm just curious about. Do people, is that something like besides Tanya's book, do people know that youth suicide is so high in those Northern communities in Canada? Do people know that? If they're paying attention, they know. I think what, what hurts my heart the most about what you just said is that it, I think, and I think she talks about it in this book, unless I, I heard her speak about it, was that it's almost just accepted as part of the way life is in their communities. And that just hurts my heart. That should never be accepted that this is just how things are. So we do have some communities that have had several uh, close together like that, usually in the northern communities, usually on the reserves and isolated communities. And it's in the news. There are you know, articles about it, but unless people really are paying attention, I think it's unfortunately one of those things that they hear about and think, well, that's too bad. And, you know, that's on the reserves. So it doesn't affect me where I, where I hear that. And I think those are my Canadian brothers and sisters. That's my family. And so I have to, you know, do what I can. Now I can't stop those things, but what can I do? you know, is to learn more about it and not just have it be something I saw in the news, but something I'm going to learn about, something I'm going to talk about with other people to make sure they know. <laughs> you know, some of my friends, I'm sure they're like, oh, Dolene's talking about this again, uh, you know, but 
but I think it's important. And I think, and again, not just I'm going to talk about it and I know everything. I actually don't, you know, I, I, I'm just, I'm interested in the topic, but, and back to something I said earlier, are you talking about this with indigenous people? And it, and never in a way that I, and I think this is important that it's not, I have to solve the problem for the indigenous people, but they're going to come up with how they want to help, like how they want our help. And then I will help them. So they will figure out what their communities need. And if I can help in any way, then I will. But without that building of those relationships, and, you know, being like, well, I'm over here and they're, they're up there in those isolated communities. That's not really helping, you know? So what are we doing to build relationships? And, and I think that that's, that's key, you know, say, same with, you know, with the Black Lives Matter, you can talk all you want about it, but are you actually talking to black people to see how they feel? And, you know, and not just one black person, that's only one perspective, you know, to talk to a number of people, talk to families, find out where they're coming from. And I heard, now I think it was a friend of mine on Facebook who was First Nation. And she said, you know, with all of this going on, like, it's great. And we're, and we're so happy to have allies. But she said, I'm exhausted. You know, like, I'm exhausted because now all of a sudden everybody wants, you know, how can we help? What can we do? And I thought, that's such a good point that she's making. You know, it's actually not up to them to tell us <laughs> what to do. But it's up to us to to be prepared to help them when they're ready like and I think they're ready and I think that's why we're seeing the, the differences you know that something this is different this time yeah well I just want to wind up with you had said something and I, I thought I wanted to mention this because I think it's so it's it's beautiful but it's true which you said reconciliation and, and let me just say in Canada and if the Americans or anyone else is listening Canada had the truth and reconciliation uh, commission a number of years ago, and I believe it was 94 truths came out of it, things that were supposed to be addressed to help the situation in with Indigenous people and to make their lives better and to address the, the past. But you said reconciliation will not happen until everyone in our country has basic human rights. And isn't it amazing that in 2020, you're saying that, that we're saying that, we're across the world, we're saying that? Yeah, like I think the truth and reconciliation sounds really good, and I think it's an ideal, but I don't think we're anywhere near it. That's my own opinion. I, you know, you'd have to ask Indigenous people how they really think about it. But, and I mean, she kind of says that in the, well, somebody says that in the book, you know, that, and I think they're right. And I think that's why it was important that if we can't even give our own people the basic human rights, how are we going to reconcile? How can I say to anyone else, you know, well, I can have clean drinking water but you can't, you know, and the part of the truth and reconciliation, I think we're still struggling at the truth part. You know, if we don't recognize the truth is that there are people in our country without clean drinking water, and it's not considered, you know, a basic human, like, how is that even in our minds that that would be okay? It boggles my mind. So we need to know the truth and not take that truth as something that doesn't affect our people and who we are as Canadians right now. I think it's something that Canadians, <laughs> they need to know our history. And yes, it's true that that history wasn't taught for a long time, but I don't think you can be a Canadian in 2020 and say, well, I didn't know about that. If you didn't know about that, there, that's a problem. 
So I, I think that we're working on the truth part. Yeah, and I think it's the same here in the United States with regard to our own history. Uh, obviously, we don't know our own history. It has, it has not really been taught. And I, I sort of feel like that's one of the first steps, in my opinion, one of the first ways that we can combat racism, I really believe, is if we tell the truth to children who have an empathetic heart because they haven't grown up yet to be jaded and racist. But if you tell a child how someone suffered, I really truly believe if they know that they have that natural empathy. And I do think that it, it could change the world. I really, I believe that. I know it's simplistic and I'm not saying it is that easy, but I think it's a step that we have to tell the truth about our history and not just this rah-rah, apple pie, flag-waving stuff that we do in this country, but the real truth. Because I will tell you, I was an adult before I realized about the uh, internment camps for the Japanese during World War II. I didn't know that until I was an adult. And I mean, my gosh, it's my own country and I didn't know that. So yeah, we have a lot of, we have a lot of work to do. There's no question, so. Yeah, and so do we. And I mean, racism is taught. I grew up in Northern BC in a little town called Fort St. John up on the Alaska Highway. And yeah, I had no real blood relatives there other than my mom and dad. There's a couple of cousins, but they had moved away. So the indigenous thought, although I would not have thought of it at that time in that way, is that, you know, it's your family is goes beyond just your relatives, your blood relatives, traditional nuclear family but that it actually becomes an entire community. And so that's how I was raised. I was raised by people who were from different families and they all became, we call them aunts, auntie and uncles. And uh, I had a grandmother, you know, like a grandmother figure in my life that wasn't my blood relative. To me, when I talk about my family, that's my family. So then we moved to Ontario. I'm almost 12 years old. I go to school for the first day. And of course the teacher says to me, can you look on, you know, show us on the map where you're from. So I show them where Fort St. John is on the map. And he says, uh, oh, that, you know, that's a long ways. And he says, okay, I'm going to sit you up front here with these two girls. So he sits me up front in this one girl. I still remember Maria. She turns to me and she asks me two questions. First question was, do you know how to swear? So I laughed and I said, yes, I do know how to swear. Because I don't know, she must have thought like I was an Eskimo or something. Like I was so far north, right? And then she said, number two, What's your nationality? I didn't know what that meant. So I said, well, what, what do you mean? And she says, well, like I'm Italian. And I said, oh, I'm, well, I'm Canadian, I'm, I'm from Canada. And she says, yeah, but like, what's your nationality? And the other girl says, yeah, I'm Portuguese. And the other girl says, you know, they all kind of told me their nationalities. And I said, well, how do you know? Because I had, I'd never thought of it. And she said, well, you know, because like, what kind of things do you eat? What's your culture? What does your family do? And so I thought, oh, I said, well, I said, I'm Ukrainian and I'm Métis and I'm Cree and I'm French because those were the people that were around me. And I did know that I was French. My mom's side is French. But it bothered me because I didn't know the answer. I didn't even know that that was correct. And they kind of looked at me like, okay. <laughs> but they didn't say too much else. And I went home and I said to mom, I said, mom, what, what nationality am I? And she says, you're Canadian. And I said, I know, but I said, they asked me at school. And I told them that I was French and Métis and Cree and Ukrainian. And my mom started laughing and I was so hurt. <laughs> and I said, I'm not. And she said, 
well, no, because like the, she says, those were the families around us. She says, you know, I'm French and Irish. And my dad was like, you know, Heinz 57. And I said, oh, I said, so I'm not. And I was so upset I, because to me, that's who I was. I was the kid who made prehe, made pierogies. I was the kid who ate bannock and went, you know, to visit my godparents who and their families who were my family. You know, and I was the kid who, you know, we made torsier and like, so how am I not those things? And that's when I realized, like, mom and dad never made me think that I was different than these people. We were all just one. And we celebrated who each one was. And I think if we can learn to do that in Canada and around the world, that we really celebrate our differences, that it's okay to be different, but teach me about your culture. Teach me about your thinking and what's important to you and how you celebrate and, you know, those kind of things, like what are your ceremonies and what kind of things are important to you, then maybe, you know, we wouldn't, we wouldn't have lost some of our indigenous languages if that was the case. And we wouldn't have lost so many people, you know, through horrendous uh, situations. So, yeah, so I do believe it's taught and I was very lucky to have parents who did not teach me that. I actually, I want to end on that note because that was a really beautiful story. And I think it just goes to show you that community is so important. And as you said, celebrating those differences and acknowledging that it's okay for all of us to be different, but to come together and share those experiences and and ways of life together. Uh, So Jolene, thank you so much for that conversation today. Well, thank you. It was a pleasure to talk with you. And uh, as we know, this is very close to my heart and it's very important to me. So I was very happy that you invited me. So thank you so much. Thanks for listening. If you'd like us to continue providing great content like this, please like, share, comment, and tell all your friends about Canada Reads American Style. Bye.